Details. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we sat down with Saleo. We'll get into that conversation in a minute. First, we have two sponsors we want to thank for making this episode possible. First up, I want to thank a new sponsor, NCH Tax and Wealth Advisors, which doesn't sound exciting, but what they do is just make you better your job by not having to spend time doing things that you don't want to do. So We, we love them. We both we, use them. We legitimately <laughs> do. We use them for our personal stuff. We use them for our other businesses. We use them for spec. We use them for everything, and they are fantastic. We have this accountant named Andrew Carroll, and he works at NCH. He wrote a book called The Freelancer's Guide to Escaping Taxes. I think that's usually reserved for like large companies, like tax avoidance. But what it really does is just put more money in your pocket, which is pretty cool. So you can go check that book out. It's an ebook. You can get it for free by going to cpaandrew.com slash spec. Andrew is the best. Like Sam Sophus was using him first. Sophus sends me an email and goes, this guy is the best accountant. That was the entirety of how he explained it. He's like, he's the best accountant and he's not wrong. So I pay a few hundred bucks a year and everything is covered for me and I just don't worry about it ever again. And it is the best thing in the world. So you should go do that too. cpaandrew.com slash spec. Thanks once again to NCH. Our second sponsor back again, Dropbox. Dropbox is the best way to keep all of your files in sync across all of your devices all the time. If one of your devices dies, say your computer explodes, you do not lose your files. That's different than how I usually think about my computer dying. (laughs) If it spontaneously blows up and you are not in the near proximity and survive. (laughs) You somehow survive this disaster. It doesn't matter. Your files will be safe too. (laughs) Your files will be safe. Your files will no matter what, even if you don't. So what does that mean? Uh, if you are a computer user, it means that you keep all of your normal files, like your music and videos. But if I'm uh, not a computer user. If you are a designer, it means that you don't lose the hundreds of hours you've poured into your sketch files, your Photoshop files, your prototypes, your mockups, on and on. It's all safe in the cloud. Wait. Synced to all of your devices. Can I get previous versions? Actually, yeah. So Dropbox has really awesome version control. So every time you save your file... Dropbox takes a snapshot of that. So if you ever make a mistake or an engineer jumps in and changes stuff in your file, you can just revert back. And engineers ruin everything. We all know that. We love them. So the revision history lets you go back in time, get the file, the exact version you need at the exact time you need it from. And on top of all this, Dropbox is making some really awesome tools to help people collaborate. So whether you're working with people that aren't designers or not, you can just quickly send files, huge files, just using a simple link, generated instantly, send that file to anyone in your company, anyone you're working with. They can download it from their side. They also have inline commenting on the web and on their mobile devices. You can have inline comments right next to the files you're working on, which means you can have discussions about the designs you're working on uh, with non-designers. It's a great product. We use it for spec. Brynn and I both use it in our personal lives and every computer user should be using it as well. To learn more, go to dropbox.com and sign up. Thanks so much to Dropbox. With that, let's get into episode 67 with Saleo Cuervo. Hey folks, my name is Saleo Cuervo. I am a designer and advisor to uh, several early stage startups here in the Bay Area. I was an early Facebook employee, um, have the dubious distinction of being the creator of the like button, um, which I'm happy to 
talk to you guys more about um, and was lucky enough to run design at Dropbox from 2012 to 2014, where I oversaw a lot of the early growth and um, a lot of the work that we needed to do to expand Dropbox from a much beloved consumer product to a force in the enterprise world. Um, and I now live and work primarily in Los Altos, and I'm father to two handsome boys and husband to a lovely wife who uh, <laughs> allows me into her garden from time to time. <laughs> yes, we got it in. <laughs> and that was the only mention of gardening, and no one will understand any of that. You have an interesting story bouncing both in and out of the U.S. and then kind of across the country. Yeah. I'm curious to hear that and then like at what point you started paying attention to design and technology. Sure. Um, so my backstory is I grew up on the East Coast, was born in the great state of New Jersey and um, was raised in Colombia. Uh, but my two parents were both immigrants from Bogota, Colombia. When I was about four years old, my mother and I moved back to the States full time where I was raised in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey. I think it's exit nine off the turnpike if you're into that sort of thing. And um, was lucky enough to go to boarding school um, and after that attended the great University of Duke in Durham, North Carolina from 1999 to 2003. Where so, you studied music. Where I studied music. <laughs> composition, right? Music composition. And, Any particular um, instruments? I play violin and saxophone. Okay. Uh, my entire design career kicked off in an unlikely fashion. During high school, I ran an intramural soccer league and the way that we were able to organize this intramural soccer league was through this newsletter that we developed. It was like this weekly newspaper that I was publishing with, uh, with a, a student peer of mine. And this newsletter was an, just really an excuse to play around with this app called Quark Express. I'm like really <laughs> dating myself at this All stage, right, but Quark. Um, Quark Express was just like this crazy tool that somebody had made that like mapped to my mind. I was able to draw boxes and write words and put ideas and then public, like hit print and then flyer the entire campus. And so uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was like doing desktop publishing, was doing page layout design as like a 15 year old. And the newsletter landed on the desk of a faculty member who ran the communications office, this great guy named David G. W. Scott. And so Mr. David G. W. Scott reaches out to me. He goes, you making this newsletter that I keep running it to? I'm like, yes, am I in trouble? Did I write anything that's offended somebody? Are you going to shut me down? He goes, no, 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 no. What are you doing this summer? You live around here, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, you should come work for me. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but David G. W. Scott was uh, running the communications office at St. Andrews, and he was a one-man army just producing every single printed material that the school needed to solicit alumni for donations, to keep parents and, and faculty abreast of everything that was going on in the community. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, for me, this rocket ship of an experience to go from like teaching myself Quirk Express to realizing, like, actually, this is a thing that people do for a living. Here's the entire process end to end in terms of creating content, designing out the the alumni magazine, getting to print and actually going to print on time. And so I was lucky enough to do that for two summers. So if you flash forward to 1999 and you arrive at Duke University campus as a guy who wants to start a band and knows how to use Photoshop and Cork Express, all of a sudden you become like this one man marketing team. And the way that we were going <laughs> to differentiate ourselves from all these other freshman year college bands was we were going to be the first to have a website. Nice. And 1999 was mm -hmm. like, you know, dot com boom. That's and websites so were a thing. Funny. <laughs> I, 
I got my start working in recording studios designing like album covers and like yeah. MySpace pages and yeah, shit. Yeah, dude. Like, <laughs> so we're like, okay, guys, we're going to have a website. We're going to flyer the entire campus with all this like unique promotional material and everything's going to be, it's, it's going to read mojotrain.com. I was Mojo Oregon. train. Mojo train. Dope. Yeah. And so. I'm um, assuming that's saxophone then, not violin. <laughs> it was both. Wow. Electric, uh, electric violin? I went electric. Nice. <laughs> Whoa. Got a sick little Yamaha. Are there YouTube videos that we can find? No, we, there was no YouTube back then. YouTube that you've <laughs> uploaded since. Oh, come on, Shirley. I don't even think people had digital cameras back in 1999. Long story short, um, in, it was just another glorified excuse to get my hands on uh, an app that I'd heard about called Dreamweaver. And Dreamweaver, I didn't realize it at the time, was the tool that was meant to help people parlay all of their experience in desktop publishing to the World Wide Web. Um, and so it was very easy to just pick up and learn. And I remember very distinctly the, the moment where like you hit view source and you're like, holy shit, like I do stuff in this WYSIWYG editor and it just kind of outputs this code and this code has embedded meaning and I can edit the code directly. And then before I knew it, I was like writing really shitty Perl scripts. I was like figuring out how to set up a database. And this is all happening while I was supposed to be, you know, going to class and, being a good student and so forth. But I had this uh, strong intuition that this was the way the world was going to work going forward. Like this is, this is like valuable to learn adjacent to my uh, undergraduate uh, curriculum. And I remember like my roommate at one point waking up at like 3 a.m. and I'm sitting in front of a computer, like just mucking around with code and he goes, dude, just go to bed. What are you doing? I'm like, the internet's going to be a big deal, man. Like this is, this is the future. <laughs> How did, why, why do you think that? I just couldn't imagine a world where it it just felt so inevitable. It was um, it was just so dirt cheap to produce content for the web, and so cheap to consume it. Yeah, and sort of extrapolating it forward, it's it is like well, there are all these companies are starting to get built around this idea, and maybe maybe I too can be working on this. Google was becoming this popular product on campus mm -hmm. and a lot of computer science majors were like thinking about, you know, angling towards those internships out in the Bay Area. So over the course of my undergraduate career, I started basically building a web development business um, since Duke didn't even have an internal team servicing all of its academic departments. And I cornered a really nice niche market in that space, just basically producing web standards compliant websites for all of these Duke University departments that were happy to give this work to a student mm -hmm. instead of like a expensive, you know, Raleigh firm right. for like 10 times what I was charging. Ah, yes, that expensive North Carolina pricing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my stuff was pretty state of the art. It was great. It, like, you know, I was building like, you know, a content management system on the back end. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was essentially like, doing design work thinking about okay how do we make the product experience really dirt simple you know how do i make sure that anything that i can do the client can do make sure that they're happy that they're you know referring me to other departments and so me and two friends uh, one of whom is blaze de persia of facebook lore we just basically partnered up and started this uh, little uh, web development and design shop in durham north carolina and that's what i did for uh, my senior year at duke and the following year we eventually all parted ways. Blaze ended up attending film school in Los Angeles. Our partner, Victor, elected to focus a bit more on music production. He ended up becoming a sound engineer for Puff Daddy. What? Believe it or not. Yeah. You can look this guy up. That's Victor. Yeah, he's, he's Victor who? Abijaudi, the second. VI. Okay. Professor VI. Okay. And uh, I was still passionate about the web. I was like, I know you guys are not as excited about this as I am, but I think it's, it's going to be a thing. And this is obviously in the wake of the uh, big dot-com crash. 
But lo and behold, Google shined a pretty bright beacon for me in the spring of 2004 when on April 1st they announced Gmail, this beta product that they were developing. And it was essentially web-based email, but where the interface was resembled more like something you would expect from desktop software. And Ajax was becoming a thing. And it was like, we were starting to view the, 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 the browser as a portal for desktop-like software experiences. And again, I had that strong intuition that this is where the future is headed. And I am spinning my wheels out here in Durham. I could be living in San Francisco instead and maybe finding other people like myself who are really passionate about this. And so on a total whim that summer, I moved out here to the Bay Area and never really looked back. Continued working as an independent designer and developer. Worked on a project that uh, came across the radar of an early Facebook employee in the summer of 2005. And they reached out to me uh, over email saying like, hey, you know, we've working on some stuff down here. We'd love to hang out with you. We know you're in San Francisco. You want to like come down to Palo Alto and grab coffee or talk shop or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Uh, like a month go by, goes by and they're like, no, seriously, we, we should hang out. And I'm like, all right, all right, I'll schedule some time. We'll, we'll, we'll make this happen. And I took a trip down to, to Palo Alto, met a bunch of guys in a building. It felt very boiler room-esque. There was like no semblance of order. It's just a bunch of desks. And uh, most of the people there were two to three years younger than me. I was only 24 or 23 at the time. <laughs> and they were very quick to launch into, you know, kind of selling what they were working on. And I didn't have access to Facebook at that time. Uh, it was a college-only network. And they had a, like a pretty pristine set of things that they thought about the world. One was that the world was kind of built around these relationships and that there was no system that really mapped out all of these relationships, like the relationships between people, between themselves and their employers, like celebrities, the businesses they patronize. The thesis was if somebody could map out all of these relationships, not only would they be able to then accelerate information flow, information flow was like this term that kept being bounced around in early Facebook, um, but we'd be able to build a product that they were calling feed. And the idea of feed was that it would be like this daily newspaper that would show you all the world's events through like the lens of your friends. And, you know, a lot of this data was highly structured in nature. And so their thinking was, you know, if we could kind of make a person's profile more structured, we would be able to then allow advertisers to target advertisements to this structured profile data. And it would have like highly targeted, um, a very highly targeted advertising platform that would eventually rival Google's. So this is like my first meeting with, with Facebook. And I'm like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> what? <laughs> and this was like 2005. Yeah. The how was not at all figured out remotely. Right. <laughs> but they had a really pristine picture of the feature. And what, what really just hooked me after that first meeting was, one, they were very smart. Almost like too smart to be working on social networking. Uh, two, it seemed inevitable what they described. Like, if they didn't do it, somebody was going to do this. This is something that's going to exist someday. And I kept kind of looping back to the last thing that was asked you know, during that, those meetings, like, why not us? Like, why, why can't it be us that makes this come to fruition? And I found that ambition so intoxicating, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. They're like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, I don't know, what should I be doing tomorrow? Like, come back, you should come and interview. And it was pretty, pretty informal, the entire interview process. But I think by and large, we were mutually sold on the idea of working together. And I, my, my thinking was, you know, I can go and build like a proprietary CMS, or I can go build on what ended up becoming like the mother of all CMSs. And I thought, you know, I'll give this a year. I'll try this out for a year and see what happens. And then one year at Facebook it turned out to be six. 
Um, and over that time period, we grew the College Oni social network from about, I think it was about 4 million users at that time to this global juggernaut of about 100 million some odd folks by the time I had left. It was 100 million in 2011? I'm sorry, 800 million. Oh, 800, I spoke 800 million. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah, no, 100 million around, I think it was summer 20, 2009 or 2010. Anyway, long story short, it was amazing to get to work on you know a lot of early products, um, products that are still around today, which is really exciting, uh, albeit way better than they were when we first shipped them, <laughs> way better designed for sure. Uh, but then two, uh, I think a lot of the work that I underestimated was just the work that goes into building a team and a culture and hiring great people and and trying to scale the efforts of like that early team and really also just kind of building the culture on the fly and trying to get a sense of like, well, who are we as Facebook in the world? What do we stand for? What do we fight for amongst ourselves? And like, you know, where does this journey actually take us? Like, you know, how much success can we can accumulate over time? And um, it was amazing. It was just, it was certainly the, one of the best jobs a person could possibly have. Can we dig in there? What were yeah. some of the answers that you came up with for like, how should this culture look? Because you yeah. were so early. Um, obviously, like the early people have a huge role in the foundation of the culture, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that became self-evident was that Facebook was fundamentally a technology company. And in order for design to be a relevant contributor to a technology company, it had to be a technical team. And so if you look at the first dozen hires to Facebook design, one, all those people had some technical background. They were all very comfortable with like building stuff for the web and shipping. Uh, but then two, they were all people that were like heavily relied upon to, to actually ship to production, to just like get the work out the door, not just like prototype and come up with ideas, but to actually, actually execute and get it out the door. Uh, we were very fortunate in that our medium was primarily desktop web. We weren't shipping across numerous platforms or yep. interface types or anything. It was just like Internet Explorer 5. How, how big was the team when you joined? Uh, I was the second product designer. So a team of like, two. Oh, was so it? like total Facebook team though? Oh, total Facebook team. Uh, we were like, I think I was like the 30th employee. Okay. We had like about 11 engineers, uh, two designers. Uh, way too much work. That's a, that's a pretty... <laughs> That seems to be a pretty common bet that like a handful of designers can keep up with a ton of developers. Yeah, it was it was stressful. Yeah. <laughs> we were also horrible at recruiting. Uh, that was one of the things that I learned. Why? Because uh, uh, we just didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I think it was a combination of things. One, we didn't try. Uh, two, we didn't recognize like how much growth itself in terms of the team would unlock future opportunities. I think it's one of those things that once you sort of experience it firsthand, you're like, ah, I now understand why large organizations are built around really hard problems. It turns out you need a lot of people to tackle oh, things. Oh, this is what we were supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there was also this attitude at early Facebook that we're trying to fly low under the radar. So we were very opaque as, as a company. Um, Interesting. Most people who we would reach out to and engage with would say, like, you have designers? Like, really? What the hell do they do? Like, it doesn't look like you guys design anything. Um, and that was, a, you know, a common perception problem that we weren't actively trying to, to shape or, or influence. That's a really interesting thing because the only company I hear that about these days is Dropbox. Because <laughs> you guys have done such a great job with the invisible design 
uh-huh. that no one knows what you're doing other than the illustrations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work embedded in that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we don't doubt it. Um, but uh, I think in particular with Facebook, there was this early ethos that oh, I always try to honor and I always try to emphasize with, and so speaking to, to the culture points, there was this page that was like facebook.com slash feedback.php. And so people would just like, .php. yeah. And so people would just go in and like write letters to Mark Zuckerberg, like, dear Mark, I don't like that. <laughs> My high school buddies are on this service. Can you please make it so that, no, 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 no. And, Please remarkable. don't take away my feed like you said you would. <laughs> and so what was remarkable about this thing is like we built an internal page that just would show you all these messages that were coming in. And the vast majority of them were like addressed to Mark Zuckerberg as if he was a student at Harvard sitting in his dorm room, like working on newsfeed. <laughs> right? And I actually thought there was something really beautiful about this like mythology of like, if we're doing our jobs correctly, people should continue to believe that this is like, a one-man show, like the product experience to feel like it's coming from one set of hands rather than like a team of people, that there is no sense of like, oh, it looks like designer A worked on this thing and designer B worked on that thing. And so it, like there's something very pure about kind of maintaining that and sort of driving that early ethos around like making sure there was tremendous uniformity across all of our product pages, that we were trying to be extremely lightweight in terms of the visual design and imprint that the product was leaving because um, we were also recognizing that we were a very iterative team. That's when we were developing and building the best products. It wasn't so much where we would like spend six months redesigning a thing and then just plop it out there. It was more like, let's just sort of build stuff and see what happens and make sure that our visual framework allows us to just kind of mutate and evolve the product over time. My favorite example of how this manifested was, you know, I would go on these recruiting roadshows to universities because I love recruiting and we would take these trips out to, to colleges and I would basically show people screenshots of Facebook over the years kind of going backwards in time and I would ask people you know raise your hand if you recognize this and so I'd show a screenshot of like newsfeed in 2010 a bunch of hands go up raise your hand if you recognize this it's like a screenshot of newsfeed 2008 and then like a bunch of hands go down and as I continuously was working my way backwards in time people were like I think he's trolling us. I don't think he's showing us like an actual version of face. I don't know where this is going. And the point that I was trying to make was look how many different versions of this product we've shipped over the years. And it's just kind of constantly evolving right before your eyes. But we designed it in such a way to enable that fast, quick iteration so that we can just try out things, say like, we don't know what we're doing. uh, And then like, you know, revert back to, you know, previous designs and to the average user, it would sort of leave a really soft um, imprint in our minds. It wouldn't sort of feel every redesign quite as heavily. Um, and it just had allowed us as a design team to focus on the things that really mattered, which was thinking about what are the core set of features or primitives that are going to really drive the, the kind of systemic engagement and growth that we need to, to really turn this thing from a college-only social network to something that's universally uh, appealing. And so that kind of, again, circling back to this idea of early ethos, it was just this idea of like being really not being precious about the work, being like very, very rapid and building out design systems that would enable people to explore new opportunity spaces without being constrained by the actual design system or the visual design or, or focusing on things that frankly don't matter, right? And this is a terrible thing to say in this day and age, but back then, like we didn't care about like the corner radii and the button. <laughs> that wasn't going to drive systemic growth. Right. What was going to drive systemic growth were going to be things like people you may know. 
It's going to be like the first 20 minutes that a first person spends on the product. It was going to be whether or not they got a like on their first post on Facebook, right? And those are the kinds of product experiences that in my mind, uh, Facebook just did a really good job of honing in on. So in your Ask Men profile, oh God, <laughs> which will be in the show notes because it's magnificent. Um, which he just found out which about right just before found we started out existed. We, really, we, we need to find the person who wrote that. How's this? I'm going to find that person. <laughs> yeah. But in that one and other uh, interviews you've had, you have this metaphor of the airport. Do, yeah. you, do you still feel strongly about that enough to share what that is? Sure. So I guess for me, one of the things that I would personally draw information or inspiration from is just common spaces that people need to navigate quickly and that people need to be able to take action upon. This is everything from like urban planning to, I mean, airport design is, is one of those things where you think about it, like by design, an airport is an environment that is transitional. You don't hang out at airports and where time is of the essence, you know, you get lost you can lose a lot of money in the process and it becomes really frustrating. Um, and where it has to also be universal. If it's an international airport, um, a big chunk of the folks in that building don't speak English. They may not even read English. And so what I drew inspiration from there was this idea of like, if you plop somebody into an unfamiliar space, how can they quickly just familiarize themselves with their environment? How can you sort of call attention to the things that they probably will be looking for? They probably are looking for bathrooms. You're probably looking for a place to eat. They're probably most important of all looking for where to go, right? That requires like a, a tremendous amount of intentionality, like a real sense of like purpose. It's, it's, it's very top-down design if you think about it. And I think the same was true of, of, of Facebook in many different ways. If, if you grab a, a sample set of a thousand people using Facebook today and you looked at how they use Facebook, it's pretty much the same thing. They're checking notifications, scrolling through newsfeed, liking stuff, writing comments, sending stickers, you know. It's very top-down in its design, but it allows and affords for a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of modes of expression, right, and, and ways of discovering new things, new content, new things about the people that they know, um, new ways to, to share. And so uh, for me personally, it was just, um, I don't know, I just, I think that, you know, if you are in an airport, you're probably there for a reason. And the job of anybody who designs an environment like an airport is to make sure that a person accomplishes what they're trying to do as like swiftly as possible with very little familiarity with the product. And that's actually really hard. Uh, I think most people think that airport design is easy, but it's really not. It seems so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> put planes somewhere, put a door on the front, yeah. problem solved. <laughs> and there's a lot of like embedded edge cases. You know, where do you put the car parking garage relative to it? Um, I mean, I just would love to know how airport designers or architects are thinking about a world where Uber is now a factor, right? Like, how do you facilitate this idea of, like, a car coming to pick you up that's maybe not uh, a car that you own or that's driven by somebody who you even know, right? How do you make that handoff much more seamless? Mm -hmm. um, so Uber's been working on that, the, the other side of it, which has been really cool to see iteration on airport pickups specifically at sfo where they're not allowed to sit there every yeah. time i fly into sfo and open the app something's changed Something that's made different. it easier to find the car it's, it's like where cool. are you upstairs arrival b2 or whatever like <laughs> yeah crazy and so like when people ask like well why does uber need so many designers it's like every single one of these little one-offs requires a person to really think through and you know th think through the details and, and really like get that experience right because if it's 
terrible. It just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Like, think about all the times you've missed a flight. It's extremely aggravating. I've and never you missed a flight. Never, not once. <laughs> so maybe I'll miss a flight someday. It'll happen. And guess what? <laughs> when you miss that flight, you will probably be very sweaty. And, and so it just sort of like adds insult to injury. Very much. Very sweaty. Your arms will hurt. And so it's like, I think, I think when people have bad experiences with products like Facebook, they probably are really sweaty and really aggravated. So like it, 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 it hurts like 10 times more, right? It's like, fuck, what did I do? I didn't mean to do that. Like, oh, how do I undo that, right? I've been running through Phoenix with my bags in my hands trying to get Facebook to work. Yeah. It's like, I sent a friend request to who? How did I, how do I undo that, right? Right. These are oh, the kinds God, of- it's another grandma. <laughs> These are the kinds of things that I think that, you know, designers are responsible for defending people against, or at least like giving them some sort of like recourse. And so, um, anyway, that's a really long winded answer to your, to your question. No, that's great. Um, I'm curious kind of to that point though, this is such an iterative process and you're like learning as you go. Um, the first part of the question is when did data become an informant for the design team at Facebook? Mm -hmm. Um, was that already part of the process when you were there? Data became a part, so two types of data. One type of data is just user data. And that was something that actually manifested itself very early on. We were building a lot of internal tools like Gatekeeper and just like using user data to populate the stuff that we were designing just to kind of keep ourselves honest. Uh, We had this early mantra at at Facebook, which was Photoshop lies. And (laughs) (laughs) the best way I've ever heard it explained. Was that a poster on a wall somewhere? Probably was, yeah. It was certainly a slide that I had made once for like a TED tech talk that we gave. Can we make those posters again? Yeah. <laughs> cool. So Photoshop does lie. And the entire premise around that was that you can you can sort of create fantastical content to perfectly suit a, a given idea or proposal. You can really like doctor it up. But then as soon as you pipe through real data, you're like, oh, actually, this is terrible. <laughs> Four letter names, gorgeous profile pictures, yeah. smart yes. status updates. Yeah. And so a lot of it was just like, how yeah. do we build internal tools or APIs so that people when prototyping a lot of these early concepts were like piping through real data and like trying to get to data as quickly as possible. That has been one of the biggest game changers for me. Like having sketch plugins that automatically pull in data from the API. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, I mean, one, aside from getting rid of all this manual work, but then yep. two, like just again, keeping yourself honest and it's uh, totally, it like it allows you to then like let the material, the content really guide your hand in terms of the you best have to way deal to with edge it. cases mm-hmm. in your templates. It's yes. amazing. Like imagine designing a refrigerator without knowing what would go in a refrigerator. What size is food? Yeah, no, seriously, it's like <laughs> yeah. it's like you. Uh, that would be a very different exercise than if I was to exhaustively say like, here's what a thousand people keep in their refrigerator or would like to keep in their refrigerator, right? Like now go right. It's just totally different exercise. Mm-hmm. And then the other component was just uh, data science to surface one the impact of the things that we were working on. That is to say, we shipped the feature X. Here's like what it's doing to reads and writes across the system. Here's what it's doing to like short-term and long-term engagement. Just getting a sense of like, you know, how do we empirically measure the impact of a given feature and how it's performing relative to our portfolio of products. Uh, But then two, making sure that we are being really smart about identifying uh, opportunities for impact. That is to say, rather than just letting our users or our product intuition guide what we should be working on, trying to find out where is there like latent activity in the system that we haven't yet tapped into what are the things that people like awkwardly doing with the product that maybe we should like rethink and then mutate like my favorite example of this was uh, when we launched notes oh dude i was about to bring that up perfect (laughs) 
Ah, <laughs> oh, awesome. Yes, tell me about Notes. So Notes was a product that I worked on in summer of 2006, leading up to the Newsfeed launch. We were redesigning all of our um, early applications on Facebook in service of this new product, Newsfeed, that we were launching that fall. And so Notes was just a, a way for people to just generate long format notes, just basically like a blogging platform inside of Facebook. And um, we had this like tagging mechanism around it, which would allow you to basically mention a person in a note and then tag them so that it was follow the similar mechanics of photo tagging. So I would like write a note about say me and my, um, well, she was a girlfriend at the time, but like me and my girlfriend did X, Y, Z, and then I'm going to tag her in it. And so that note appears in her profile uh, along with mine. And so we, we launched this product. A couple of things sort of doomed it early on, but one of the things that we, we discovered over, over time was that people were using notes to essentially like, like multi-message their friends. They were in, like using notes with a specific intent of like sending a message out to multiple people. At that same time period, in 2006, Facebook only allowed you to message one person at a time when you're using the messaging product. And um, notes had this interesting property where like it was you know visible to your friends. So even if you only defined an audience of X people that you tagged in a note, it was still visible to a lot more folks than that. And so it just had this like accumulating effect. And it was one of those products that I think that a more naive company would have just shelved and said like, ah, this is a failure. Nobody's using it the way we wanted to. Let's just like stop working on it and work on something else. Instead, we looked at it and we said, okay, it seems as though like there's one specific use case that people are like twisting and contorting the product to do. Maybe that's something we should try to like look into and tap into a bit more. Maybe we should think about multi-messaging as something that has like latent demand that we're just, we haven't been able to identify prior to this. Um, and so it's just one of an early uh, set of examples of where we identify like latent d- demand in the product by virtue of data science and by virtue of seeing like how people are using the product uh, independent of us. Uh, the same was true for photos as, as an application, as a service on Facebook. People were changing their profile picture on a regular basis just, just as a hacky way of sharing photos on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And um, lo and behold, you know, the early Facebook team elected to, to try to channel that into a, a standalone product inside of the, the Facebook uh, environment. So, And so, of course, the web knows now that Notes is being revived. Notes is back. <laughs> How does that feel? As medium light. As (laughs) no, it's gonna be Notes Pro. (laughs) Trademark. I'm I'm excited about it. One, uh, you know, because I have a lot of uh, (laughs) uh, natural loyalty to to a product that uh, I got to work on a long time ago. I think the thing that's that's exciting to me from Facebook standpoint is Facebook's built one an enormous user base, two an enormous distribution platform. And this is me with knowing very little about what Facebook's actually working on. So take this with a, with a grain of salt. But um, what Facebook can, can exploit, given its platform and its reach and its distribution mechanisms, is that it can, you know, for a given unit of knowledge, should be able to distribute that to a much larger set of people than anything else on the planet. Uh, it should have a really long tail of engagement for any given post. And my hope is that Notes, in partnership with the Newsfeed team, will figure out, like, how do we demonstrate this in in effect right much like like facebook video the idea is like okay we have the largest audience what information can we collect on a per unit basis like on a per note basis that maximizes the potential reach for a given note and how can we then demonstrate that to people who are writing interesting stuff now um, so that they can reach audiences that were previously 
uh, and accessible to them. Um, I, I have no idea I, that's what they're going to do. But have, that, that, that would be my hope. Honestly, don't know that much either. We have a lot more stuff to talk about, but so sure. we should go on from Facebook. But before we do, yeah, you have talked online about the process of making the like button. Yes. So people can read that. I want to know maybe just like the hardest part about that for you. Uh, The hardest part was... Was thumbs up obvious? Yeah, it was pretty obvious. It was one of those things where like everybody's like, yeah, we're going to do thumbs up. That's like the thing we got to do. We had like, you know, for the sake of, you know, being thorough, we explored other affordances, but... Hearts, stars, Yeah, we just, we, we, we did a bunch of like funny like affordances, mostly just to make sure we're like exhausting the opportunity space. But I think the thing that we really gravitated towards was that you know, a hand is a universal symbol and um, we just felt as though we wanted to give it a unique Facebook flavor. And with cufflinks. With cufflinks. Um, <laughs> just to make it, you know, make a white white hand stand out on a white background. We, uh, I think the hardest thing was we were actually a bit bearish about it. Um, one of the concerns was, so, so the like button came to be as part of a program that we call the UFI. Uh, the UFI stands for Universal Feedback Interface. And that project came as a result of a bunch of problems that we were dealing with. One of the problems is that we had about four years worth of like commenting UI that we had like designed and built, each with its own code base, each with its own integration to newsfeed. It was just a clown show. So we're like, okay, we need to just create like one commenting interface to rule them all. We'll call it the Universal Feedback Interface. It has one integration point with like our application logic, with like newsfeed ranking. Uh, when we were working on the UFI, we discovered that notes commenting had no integration with newsfeed, which is why it was never appearing in newsfeeds. So we're like, oh, well, there's that. <laughs> so that single-handedly <laughs> killed notes, okay. Yep. And we uh, <laughs> we uh, we're like, okay, we want to you know standardize the UI and make it so that it's also usable across a wide range of products, not just these endpoints, which is where all the activity was happening, photos.php, wall.php, you know, shared links.php or whatever. We wanted to start to place this commenting interface inside a newsfeed. If I showed you a screenshot of newsfeed in 2008, um, it fulfilled the, the original vision for feed, which was this like daily newspaper of all this stuff that was going on around you. And like a newspaper, it was a read-only interface. You couldn't really engage with it. You can just sort of click through to things and engage with stuff at the endpoints. Uh, it wasn't a space for conversation. So it was like missing this key behavior modeling mechanism of showing people using Facebook as a space for just bullshitting with your friends. And the UFI was meant to really solve that and to show you like a long stream of newsfeed stories where anytime there was a response or feedback from the network, it would appear in this blue little gel that would sort of like appear below each newsfeed story and where like the comments were already like they were inlined and you can just type right into a box right from newsfeed. You can basically use Facebook on one page and then walk away and get like 80% of the value of Facebook. And it was the last objective was to prime the pump for this 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 long sought um feature that we had called the awesome button internally that just kept sort of like languishing in product development uh purgatory and that we just really wanted to get out the door the hardest thing was that we were concerned that liking was going to cannibalize commenting and we didn't want facebook to become a place where you just push buttons at your friends we completely overthought this we like ran like this careful test where like we like rolled it out slowly to these like high density networks just to make sure that it wasn't screwing up our engagement in any weird ways. And our, you know, our team's intuitions turned out to be dead wrong. Instead of cannibalizing commenting, 
the appearance of the like feature actually increased commenting. It kind of acted as this social lubricant where even just a person liking a particular photo or post increased the likelihood of there being like an inbound comment. It kind of created this like attractor state of like conversation inside the UFI. You know, when we finally launched it, it just took a lot longer than we were expecting it to. But I think the most difficult thing was just like our unwillingness to just take the plunge and try it out and not be so like precious about it. But I'm, I'm very, I mean, it's like, it was one of like a hundred projects that I worked on at Facebook. So I never imagined it would sort of accumulate this iconic status. Um, and more than anything, it's really testament to, to the success that Facebook is as a company, more so than me as the guy pushing like SVN commit. SVN commit. Wow. <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> this is uh, I just learned something about Facebook, I guess. You know, when we were working on Facebook, we were just googly eyed about like Apple and I remember when we first appeared, like in an Apple keynote, we're like, "We fucking did it, guys! <laughs> like, we made it in this town." <laughs> and now people see Facebook as this giant juggernaut that sort of sits at the table. I just love with... that you said googly-eyed about Apple. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we—you <laughs> practiced for this, didn't you? You walked over and you were like, <laughs> "I do a lot of interviews. I've just never done a podcast." You have like a notebook in your pocket. <laughs> Is that 81 magnetism? <laughs> Area of development. Your magnetism score. B minus. <laughs> uh, so harsh. Room for improvement. <laughs> You're a B player. <laughs> well done, sir. That's insulting. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Askmen. Yeah. Not Askmen.com. Yeah. I just got to try harder. <laughs> just got to be more magnetic. Yeah. I'm just going to go home, cry myself to sleep, and then wake up and do it all over again. Um So uh, (laughs) Facebook's a juggernaut. So Facebook's a juggernaut. And I think most people just kind of take that for granted. It's sort of like, you know, it's like the Parthenon. Like it's just a thing that exists in the world. Um, But for me, like the the key thing that I took away is that there are many more great companies embedded. They're, They're out there. They're just, they haven't been created yet. And what I wanted to do with my career was help create, help essentially add players to that table. Um, one, because I don't think it's a zero sum game where you can only have four great companies. I think you can have like 12, right? Startup gardening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, and a lot of the things that we learned the hard way at both Facebook and Dropbox in terms of, you know, product market fit, in terms of like building the right team, in terms of growth, um, these things are also applicable to a lot of these really sage teams. And so that's, um, something I want to focus a lot of my energy on is if I was a hiring manager, for this industry one you know there are a few limiting factors for tech design talent is one of them it's really hard to recruit for folks and yet there's a lot of people who want to work in this sphere so how do we create systemic pathways so that people who want to do this line of work can very deterministically do xyz and you get that job right like why is it there's so much friction in the system there people are always looking for a specific set of rules to to hit like thresholds yes it's something that's asked me all the time is like how do i get a job like what, what are the steps i just need to take to do yeah. it and so like maybe i just need to write a blog post like just do xyz <laughs> just demonstrate that you can do is, these things. do you think that's a thing maybe i don't know I, I think it's one of those things where i think it's a combination of like folks not willing to take risks on mm-hmm. unproven talent there's that uh but then two it's it's just when you are a growth stage company, when you are a startup, you live and die by your talent. Yeah. 
And so it's like really hard for folks to take gambles on, on people. Whereas Facebook was built on the backs of a bunch of new grads. <laughs> like everybody we hired was either like a college dropout or um, people that were fresh out of school. Like think about Julie Zhu, think about Bobby Goodlatte, uh, think about uh, Joey Flynn, uh, Drew Hamlin. All of these folks came to Facebook as their first job. And in my mind, I think that more employers need to be taking active risks in developing and, and nurturing early talents, giving people their first jobs. I love giving people their first jobs. I got a list of those folks because it's fun to give people the opportunity to create that inflection point in their own lives, but more importantly, in the lives of hundreds of millions of, uh, of users that you can potentially serve. So how many of those people that you gave their first jobs didn't work out? Because uh, that's the other side, right? That also happens. <laughs> um that's tough. I mean, I guess my general philosophy is I'd rather make the mistake of overestimating a person than ever making the mistake of underestimating someone. I would rather suffer overestimation to the day I die because I just, I, I don't feel as much regret as I do underestimating somebody. So, okay. um, and I think that's how you challenge people to, to, to prove themselves is by mm -hmm. like just dumping a ton of responsibility on them or giving them the opportunity to prove themselves, even if it's a reach goal. Um, and then being there when they fall short, right? Yeah, I think I think for me, like a lot of the focus right now is like, how do I build more companies like Facebook that are good, safe, happy homes to the next generation of designers? Because I know myself well enough to say that I am not one of the great designers of our age. Certainly not. I was just luckier than most people. Yeah, and you're so like, it's like mediocre at best. You're like a B plus. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, like 80, 80, 82. <laughs> So not like a solid B player. You like pass, if, but if, if you're looking for B players, I'm your guy. Hire Saleo. <laughs> um, but I do like the idea of like, well, how do we start to make luck and opportunity more accessible to folks? How do we just do a better job of signaling to people outside of industry? These are the things that hiring managers want to see. These are the resources that are freely available for you to develop your craft. And this is what the work actually looks like in practice. I mean, you're going to do a bunch of things as an individual in front of a computer. But as it turns out, design is not just staring at a computer, moving things around or typing code. It's like spending a lot of time talking to folks, being collaborative, meeting somebody who can move ideas around. And in that model, I think we can draw a lot of inspiration from existing industries that stumbled into the exact same pain points. Everything from like the TV industry with its writer's room uh, all the way through to like the military and how it like generates knowledge and disseminates knowledge as efficiently as possible across like large organizations, um, how the military recruits. Right. And, um, I think oftentimes technology folks tend to believe that we're stumbling into a problem for the first time when in fact it turns out there's a lot of <laughs> prior examples <laughs> that we can draw inspiration from. How do you get someone their first job? What do you teach them? How do you advise them? What do you look for? Uh, so things that I look for very actively is one, like side projects and not just side projects in terms of, um, you know, I just, I made a thing cause I need to show you that I made a thing like side projects that demonstrate a real passion for the work. Like you have to suffer through, like my version of this was like suffering through IE six bugs. I like became a domain expert on like IE six CSS hacks, <laughs> which is really sad. Like when was that asterisk or underscores? <laughs> Uh, some really exotic like <laughs> and we kind of needed to write the playbook there because 80 percent of our user base was on ie6 and we're like we gotta we gotta make this happen and what i love about that is that you know if you know finding folks who are willing to suffer through 
the monotony, the pain of their craft, at least in my mind, demonstrates like they've got the the discipline and the passion to to be excellent. I think Ira Glass described taste as like just that like dissatisfaction, that like willingness to just apply more energy and force. And I was very lucky enough to um, have a private instructor uh, as a young violinist who just had me, my first two years with this guy was just playing scales. We played no music and I hated it. It drove me nuts. But he was really good at identifying when I was not practicing my scales. But more importantly, it was like training this like engine in my head that made me realize, oh, actually, he can hear when I'm not playing in tune, and now I can hear it. And frankly, I don't sound like those guys on the radio. And now I know what that sounds like in the delta between me and them, and I want to bridge that. I'm going to play scales until I sound more like that player. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize it, but like sometimes you have to throw time to really smooth out those edges and develop the taste to know when you are out of tune because that's essential to playing difficult pieces. You have to kind of like be able to think one level above of where your current skill set is and that just requires time. So the side projects that I look for are, are, are ones that are exemplary of things that are just like monotonous or hard that require somebody to really spend a lot of time and energy to, to, to solving. Other things that I look for are like trajectory. Like how quickly does the person become proficient at something? Like asking them like, okay, you're clearly good at this. When did you first start? Because trajectory is something that, again, can be extrapolated forward. And I think that, you know, it's easy to teach a person a bunch of things, especially if they're really good learners. Are they self-motivated enough to kind of pick up new skills very quickly? And that in and of itself is like a meta skill. Like learning new things is a meta skill that I I know myself, I, I, I thought would just no longer be applicable once you left school. But it turns out it's just applicable to the day you die. And uh, this is continuously true of like the very best designers, like the difference between a B player and an A player in my mind are the folks that are just like better at teaching themselves new skills and forcing themselves to grow in new areas that are, were previously underdeveloped. The last thing that I look for is just a collaborative event, somebody who's willing to uh, take critical feedback and take it well, somebody who is really adept at just incorporating good ideas from others, somebody who's able to just be like a solid team player, not just like a Don Draper type character that sits in a room and comes back with a brilliant idea. Um, the thing that I often look for is just folks that can combine a healthy sense of imagination with being able to like suss out the best from other people. Because when a person is resourceful in the manner that I described, you can throw more people into their sphere and they just get better work out of those people. Um, they just create like nonlinear value. Um, and then everything else is teachable. Teaching a person how to use framer is not hard, right? It just takes time. But those are the kind of qualities that I look for. So when you when you move past that first stage of getting someone their job, you move more into like a mentorship role? Um, it kind of depends on the individual. But um, yeah, part of it's just kind of getting them acclimated with tech. Like if they're showing up to their first rodeo, part of it's just like making sure that on the ground they understand like, hey, here's what engineers do. Here's what product managers do. Kind of things that we take for granted, making sure that they've got a pretty good. Oh shit! What of, do product managers do? What do product managers? Do? <laughs> I actually think there are two types of designers in tech. There are people who have worked with great product managers and people who haven't. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm lucky enough to be in the yeah. former camp. Um, product managers are amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, great product managers are amazing. I think it's mostly making sure that people understand like what is expected of them and getting a sense of the lay of the land, like who, where they should be routing their work to who should they be talking to to make their work uh, more successful and um 
making sure that they're not blowing themselves up either. I think it's really easy for a person who has tremendous amount of energy and the, the gumption to go and prove themselves in a rookie year to make a lot of rookie mistakes and just like spread themselves. Thin but go really hard on them too. Like they'll, they'll double down on rookie mistakes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I think, you know, I, I love that, you know, I'm holding in my hand this book that says focus on impact, which I guess is part of Facebook's onboarding kit. Um, I mean, like, what does focus on impact mean? Like, how do you explain that to a new grad that they understand? You hand them a notebook with it on it. Yeah. <laughs> like for me, like the, the way I like to think about focus on impact is, you know, thinking back on summer of 98 World Cup and this guy named Ronaldo from the Brazilian soccer team uh, reaches the world stage and he's a very unconventional soccer player. He's like this guy who doesn't run for most of the game. He's just sort of walking around on the field and you're like, what is he doing? Like, how, how do his teammates not hate the guy? And he just focuses on scoring goals. He just focuses on uh, applying himself to the instances in a sport where there's the most impact concentrated and that's like producing goals. And so the few times that you see Ronaldo run, he's running faster than anyone on the field and he is converting situations into goals. And you're like, how did that come out of thin air? Um, that was always my favorite uh, rubric for impact. Like goal scoring in soccer is pretty high impact. Like the games swing around just one specific dimension and you need all the other stuff to make that possible. But when it really, really counts, that's the thing that, that, that soccer games well down to. Uh, and so how do you expose the equivalent to a new grad in, in an environment? Like how do you make sure that they're not spending 80 hours working on low impact work? They're instead focusing on things that truly matter. I think you're in a unique position in that you advise lots of different teams that you might have more insight on what are common problems designers are facing now, both new designers and also experienced designers. Like what's going on at companies in tech right now that yeah. people need to figure out? Yeah. Um, one is just hiring talent is hard and expensive um, it's hard to source and it's costly to evaluate and I think one of the things that we as an industry should be better at is just doing a more concise job of evaluating talent um, one it's good for the candidate experience but then two it doesn't tax the team quite as heavily in terms of like reviewing portfolios and evaluating designer after designer and like you know sitting through uh, demoralizing debrief and deciding not to to hire a person like it just doesn't feel good it feels wasteful um, another thing that's challenging is just being able to disseminate knowledge very very efficiently uh, individual product teams will develop like deep proprietary knowledge on whatever they're working on even if it's like here's what's not here's what we should not do it's really hard and expensive for people to then share that knowledge across an organization uh, and it's just like that challenge compounds as the organization grows. Uh, it sometimes pains me, for example, to hear about stuff that maybe Facebook would try out in, say, 2012. And you're like, oh, man, did they know that we worked on that back in 2008? And did they look up those emails? And there's all this lost institutional knowledge that they need to have access to because maybe it's relevant to what they're working on today. Even if they do a better job than we did back then, they should at least know this. Um, when you are in a growth environment, it's sometimes really hard to justify the costs of over-communicating and institutionalizing knowledge. And so that's one of the, the biggest challenges. It sort of feels like people are, are, are doing their work without like a clear sense of, you know, I can't be the first person tackling this. How are other people doing this? Um, Do you see solutions emerging for that? I think we have to focus first on solutions that apply to a company and then figure out what's the best way to disseminate what is essentially proprietary knowledge to the broader public. 
I think it requires thought leadership on the part of individual companies to say, you know what, we're going to open up the kimono on like last year's products. We're going to talk about how we shipped the first version of Dropbox for business, for example, let's say. Um, it's, it's expensive to produce this content, but it's incredibly valuable once you put it out there into the public sphere. As Dropbox for Business, the entity, is it valuable to you? Because that seems to be the argument is it's not valuable to us. It's only valuable to our competitors. I don't know. I, th- I think it could be extremely valuable. I mean, this is the reason why business school exists, right? What is the atomic unit of business school? The case study, like the business case study, right? Except it just happens years after the fact, Right. And it's only applicable to today because most businesses haven't fundamentally changed, right? At the rate that technology has changed. Um, yes, it, I, I, would, I would say yes. Whatever Uber is learning right now as a product team is probably very applicable to a wide range of firms that exist today and um, firms that will exist going forward. Uh, the problem is that like people tend to be very defensive about their proprietary knowledge. And so, and the ironic thing is that employee turnover is at an all-time high <laughs> and so yeah, people the, are like leaving jobs left and right and so the, it's like you're the being average defend- tenure of a designer in san francisco is nine months or it's something really like that grim that's crazy i hope people hit their their uh their vesting cliffs right <laughs> so <the> at least <laughs> well, i think there's i think there's enough companies turning over in nine months that it's not yeah, that's fair that's shifting the the value what would you say to a company that has this defensiveness about sharing design knowledge with the broader community all knowledge is can fall maybe into two buckets here are the things that went well here are the things that went poorly right it's easy to share the stuff that went well yeah why not share the stuff that went poorly that's just as valuable or comparably valuable or more valuable yeah i can talk about a bunch of shit that didn't work out at facebook and dropbox and then the question is like well what's the most efficient way to go about it how do you synthesize the key learnings how do you reward the person that's doing the extra work of collecting this stuff? And I think it, in my mind, it's like it doesn't have to be very heavyweight to, to, to put together. Maybe it's a form of podcasts like this, right? It's just like talking to the people behind a product that didn't go well. And um, not to drum up excuses, more to drum up like, here's what we learned the hard way. Learnings, yeah. Yeah, I can, I, I can think of like if you printed out every single press release and blog post from Facebook, from today all the way to its inception, like half the things that they've announced like ended up being like sunset or retired. And yet people don't really gravitate or fixate on that stuff. And that's just a, a pretty good evidence of, you know, the tolerance for trying stuff out and experimenting and failure. And like that's kind of necessary for any company to, to really succeed and identify the, like the, the outsized wins. Um, I'm seeing slowly, but surely companies are starting to open those doors a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, there's probably more before, the, but the one that stands out in my mind is uh, when Stammy wrote this really long post about designing Twitter video. Have you seen that? I have. It's a really long post. It's a really, really <laughs> long post. But the reason it's a, I think it's, it's the full Stammy. It's full Stammy. Yeah. But the reason I think it was so valuable is because he actually got somehow got permission to show the stuff that he designed that never shipped. Like you yes. saw the iterative process yes. with written reasoning behind why that was a bad decision. Yes. And there are a few more people starting to do that. Yeah. But I think that is so valuable. I 100% agree with you. Like we, when we interview folks at Dropbox, a big emphasis is on what we call the cutting room floor. Don't just show us the final hero shots. Show us all the stuff that you tried out. 
Like show, give us the Dropbox folder of like every permutation nice. and don't be embarrassed about it because to be frank, we're designers too. We mm-hmm. have Dropbox folders full of files that are named final, 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 two, final, final, three, final, 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 Zuck All final. caps, <laughs> Zuck final. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just, you know, part of the, part of the game, but it acts as fodder for conversation to understand like, well, well why did you, why did you like b- abandon this idea? This idea was actually kind of interesting. And there might be a lot of context here. It's like, oh, okay. Now, given that, that makes perfect sense. But right. um, when you can introspect on a person's process in this fashion and somehow like share it to the world, two things are true. One, you can then understand how that process could be applied to future work, even if it's very different from what that person did in that particular instance in time. But then more importantly, from a learning standpoint, it's like invaluable to see, oh, that's why he did that. That's why that was discarded. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, in the context of these three things, that's why they arrived at this. Still not a great solution, but now it makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how I would do this differently. Or at least I don't know how I would do that within the constraints that he outlined. Yeah. Or maybe I don't agree with that one constraint. Yeah. You should have pushed back harder on this constraint. Um, and I think one of the underlying problems is that that post probably took Stammy dozens of hours. Yes. Yeah. And there's not a lot of designers that want to invest that time. Yeah. So how do you radically reduce the cost? That would be that? worth exploring. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes it's just in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. My podcast could be an interesting way to go about it. Like a screencasting. Let's just talk about a project. We're going to screencast and talk about it. What are you most excited about? What do you see that like just gets you pumped about design happening today? Two things. Your boys. One. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, actually, actually yeah, yeah, th- that's that's part two. I think I think part one is just the sheer reach. It's very rare, in general, for a person to just like make decisions and act on the universe in such a way that you affect that many people. Um, this was not true at early Facebook. Like a hundred million people is very different from say like three billion folks, right? And guess what? Three billion is going to be the number in like two years for a lot of these big major services. That's extraordinary. You can't even invent a religion that reaches that many people <laughs> like that's that's it's just like it, it's like mind warping so so the the reach piece is what's really exciting to me and why i'm just so passionate about getting more people to recognize tech as a as a place to be a creative tech as a place to be a very fruitful and well compensated and happy designer getting to work with really amazing folks um on on things that are fundamentally hard to do i think the second piece is you know while we were fixing IE6 bugs uh, at early Facebook, we often talked about like you know what the second or third decade of Facebook would look like, and one of the the con- you know concepts were around like virtual commons, the knowledge economy, universal currency, like all these like just zany heady ideas. But like the, the one of the premises that I keep circling back to is you know there's there's so much knowledge that's trapped in people's heads, and um, what I'm most excited about is that people are working on products that allow folks across the world to transition away from manual labor to using their minds, right? Using their creativity Bionics. to create. <laughs> <laughs> using their minds to move buildings around. Um, no, in all seriousness, like, like moving, like yeah. just not being mules, but doing like work with their minds. And I think that software is, is the, the essential tool uh, along across the efforts of numerous companies. And so um, that's an important one-time transition 
like now that Facebook's talking about this idea of a knowledge economy, it's like, okay, well, let's imagine that this is true. Like what are the services that don't exist today that are going to enable people to rise outside of poverty, right? Where all of a sudden like that smartphone or that tablet that shows up in a really remote location, like creates extraordinary value for these folks. That, I think it's just a very powerful mission and I think it's a very powerful opportunity. Yeah, those are the two things that get me excited. Because if you assume that talent and creativity is evenly distributed across the human species, there's a lot of latent talent and creativity that we can unlock. And that's a pretty bright future for our children and for ourselves as old curmudgeon 90-year-olds <laughs> enjoying the benefits Bee of... B-players on ass <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We are over time. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Um, be nice to your parents. Boom. Thank Thanks you. for coming on. Thank really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Awesome. That was episode 67. Saleo is the best. Saleo is awesome. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you did, come chat with us about it in our Slack team. There's over 1,300 designers and developers talking about new episodes like this one. Uh, coming out on the spec network we talk about new tools what's happening in the design and development world and every friday we host an open critique where you can upload your work and have it critiqued by all of our favorite designers to join just go to spec.fm slack put in your email and we'll send you an invite you can also hit us up on twitter at design details fm if you want to chat or just follow us about new announcements and episodes we've got other awesome shows too like developer t and immutable and we've got a couple more coming really soon called does not compute and vicarious so don't miss them go to spec.fm slash slack or follow us on twitter at design details fm before we go we have two sponsors that made this episode possible first up the new one nch we have the best accountant i don't know if you knew that but we do and he just wrote a book he sponsored the show to tell you guys about it because it's for freelancers and it's about saving money on taxes which is kind of a hard thing to do so he takes care of all that stuff for us. We don't need to read this book, but you should. And then you should hire him. And then you won't need to worry about it. So go to cpaandrew.com slash spec. Check out CPA Andrew and his stuff. He's literally the best accountant. And we couldn't thank him more for sponsoring the show. Our second sponsor is Dropbox. They are a product that makes it easy to build powerful things uh, with people and for your business. It's an easy way to sync your files across all your devices in the cloud at all times. So your files are safe. It's easy to collaborate and share between coworkers, teammates, clients. They have version control and online collaboration tools to make it easy to be a better designer. To check it out and learn more, just go to dropbox.com. Thanks so much, Dropbox. We'll see you on Monday with Trevor McNaughton and Katie Rinkovich. I've heard there's a truly glorious picture somewhere of you with hair. There and I have to imagine what Mojo Train hair looks like. <laughs> oh, I'll send you some photos. <laughs> yes. Can we put them in the show notes? Maybe. <laughs> if we can find some clever way to, to hide them as an Easter egg, yes. <laughs> Ooh, I've got a good idea. A link on a period. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good, that's a that good was idea. my first idea, but too obvious. Because we all came to that at the yeah. same time. Put it in the RSS feed. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a bit inside baseball. Yeah. Treasure hunt for Saleo's hair. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll find some really exotic way to hide it. Now um, you know.